You know, and it's interesting in, in our society here, in, particularly in America, is that we'll go from, in, in the next two months, we'll go from being so thankful for what we have here in this last week to not having enough here in the next couple of weeks. You know, we go from thankful to give me in less than just a few times. And it's amazing that we, we lose sight of so many things. And I, I've often wondered if God sits back and, and wipes his head and thinks, man, what, what, what are my children doing? You know, one minute they're asking me, they're saying, they're saying they're thankful for everything. The next minute they're asking me for everything. If you remember just a year ago, and I was thinking about this a year ago because I'm looking at my ball fields and seeing them all dried up. A year ago, we were underwater. We were asking God, please stop sending the rain. Give us a week of dry. We need it. You're going to flood us out. We thought we were going to be going to church in boats. And then one year later, we're praying for it again. So quickly how we forget things. We get so caught up in our own desires. But luckily for us, God's a forgiving God. And we know, he knows when he created us, he created us with some simplicity, simple minds. Even though we can do some complex thing, tasks and things, we're still very simple. And many times we forget the things that we have. And when I was thinking about this message, I was thinking about the things that I used to have and things I don't have today. One of those things happened to boil down to, to my, one of my favorite items. I used to love it. And I know y'all probably remember it because it was very popular here in Newton County. But I used to have this old 1986 Dodge D-150. And we called her Old Blue. And Old Blue was a sight to see. Paint was all faded. Had a bench seat that was all ripped. Had those sliding glass windows that didn't lock. Triangle windows that only brought in the hot, hot air. No AC. Radio with one speaker. In fact, the driver's window, you could barely roll it down because the knob was missing. A tailgate that only I knew how to bring down. And it had a unique feature they don't put on, on, on vehicles today. But it had a, a neat feature that could scare the living daylights out of you if you hit the accelerator too hard and let off. It'd blow flames right out the tailpipe. <laughs> In fact, I did it right here between the two buildings. This is back many years ago. I came, I'd just gotten, I come pulling through here and I revved it up and it blew and it sounded like a shotgun blast, and Landy come flying out of his office, and Terry and, and Mike come flying out of their office, and I'm just sitting there just dying laughing. I love that old truck. That truck was my favorite truck. I would drive it anywhere in Newton County. Didn't want to get too far outside of that. But during the whole time I had the truck, we only used it to take trash, and I used it here and there, and, and of course I used it every once in a while to go pick up Clint from high school, which was, if you understand that, it's a lot of fun. But I was always looking for something else. The whole time I had the truck, I'm like, I wish I had a better truck. And then when it was gone, I looked back and thought, well, that was the best truck I ever owned. Man, I wish I could have that truck. It was so simple. I didn't have to wash it. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to change the oil because it changed it for me. I had to constantly put oil in it. It was a great truck. But I never was content when I had it. No, I was always looking for the next best, better thing. But that seems to be the natural habit of us. We're always looking for the next and better thing. Well, to be quite honest, you know, and I understand that. We're a wanting group of people. We really are. We want everything. Give me, give me, give me. We want to do this and we want to do that. And there are times when we go to God and God, will you please provide me for to do this and please provide me to do that. And there are times when, when God just says, you know what, just be content with what you got. I've given you everything you need right now. Don't worry about these things. I'll take care of you. And most of us would agree when we get to talking about contentment, 
The word defined is very different to each one of us. Some will say it's physical and some say it's spiritual. Well, today we're going to look at a little bit of both. And we're going to look at the word contentment as a state of being and how we should be as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And how God can use it for good if we see it as good. But unfortunately, many of us don't define it that way. And many of us tend to put the contentment into the physical world. And if you know me, you know that I am a physical person. I like to have things. I like to do things. And that's okay. But not always. Because sometimes it can lead us the wrong direction. And other times we take contentment to the far extreme. It's what we're going to look at today. And I want to discover how contentment can be beneficial and yet destructive. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open to Matthew chapter 6. If you'll turn to the 26th verse, or the 25th verse, you'll see Jesus has been teaching here a sermon, very powerful sermon, as we've gone through many times. But here we get to a point, and Jesus begins to teach us a little bit about worrying. He tends to start teaching us a little bit about everyday life. He starts trying to tell us here that what you have is good enough. In the 25th verse, he says, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink and enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. Don't, they don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? In verse 28, he says, And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. So why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things. What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. A man came into the service one time, and as he walked out, he had his young son with him, and he was just complaining. He was complaining about the service. He was saying it was too long. The preacher was no good. The singing was off key. And finally, the little boy looked at his dad and said, Daddy, I didn't think it was all that bad for a dime. You know, you get what you pay for sometimes. And you can be content in these words. I promise you you can be content in these words. As Jesus just said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough to deal with. Already this morning, I've already been dealing with some things. It's amazing how quickly it stacks up for me as text messages and email messages start to come through. There's a lot happening right now that we need to be aware of. And as, you, as we start getting into this, I want you to understand a little bit about this contentment and what Jesus is trying to say. So we're going to go through and define contentment, but we're going to do it from the reverse psychology ways. <laughs> we're going to do it with what contentment is not. And so but the first thing I want you to understand is contentment is not complacency. Now, during Paul's time, there was a group of philosophers, we call them, they were called Stoics, and they believed, the, physiologically they believed, 
that there was nothing you could do to your life to change anything that was already going to happen. It was kind of like, so why try? What's the point type attitude? Now, if you're an unbeliever, this is a very realization for a lot of people. Because a lot of people are in a lot of trouble. A lot of people are in financial trouble as they prepare to get ready for the holidays. They're already looking at their situation, and they see no end in sight, and there's nobody that's going to help them, so why try? Why go any further? And unfortunately, this is a a very commonality for believers themselves. There's nothing else I can do in this situation, so why try? Well, that's not what we're here to understand. We understand that there is a way to try, because I think most people forget that the reason we're believers is because we believe in a God who's all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, and all-present at all times. We forget that he has these attributes. We forget this is the makeup of God. And there's nothing complacent about him. And so we have to understand that we become creatures of habit. We're naturally creatures of habit. Humans are creatures of habit. I have a habit. It's a bad habit. It's called going to Chick-fil-A every single morning. I wish I could break it. But I'm complacent in the fact that that's my breakfast. It's going to be there every single day except for Sunday. When I drive by it and I get mad at it. But we're creatures. And and we've been creatures of habit for a very long time. Where did I get that from? Well, Genesis chapter 2. If you look back here in Genesis chapter 2, starting in the 15th verse. As God had made man, and man had been formed from from the dust of the ground, and, and man had his nostrils, as God breathed into his nostrils to give him life, and gave him instructions on what to do. He says in the 15th verse, The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Now the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. That was his job. And was Adam aware of dangers that could happen inside the garden of Eden? Yes, he was. Because God had already told him, hey, don't eat from the tree of fruit of knowledge because that will kill you. You will die. So Adam was aware that there could be danger in the garden. Now, we, we, we describe the garden, unfortunately, as a place of paradise and peace and tranquility. It was perfect, and it was made perfect, but it did have dangers. It had a tree that if you ate from it, you could die. So even though this is perfect paradise, it still had danger. And Adam was told to watch over it, tend to this garden. He wasn't supposed to be complacently laying around, eating grapes, having Eve bring him coffee every morning. He was to be uh, working, watching over this garden. And many people say, well, what was he watching over? He had to be watching over something. He was supposed to be watching over anything that could attack it. And here we see very quickly that he's not aware of the dangers that happen. Adam should have smelt that serpent coming into the garden. He should have seen that coming from a mile away. And yet his complacency had already taken place in his habit. He wasn't even paying attention anymore. He had just simply sat down and let a serpent slither into the garden and get to his wife Eve and tempt her, all within a few small time frame of what probably looks like just to be a few days all this took place and so he's not watching because he thought nothing could happen and this happens to christians all the time we're not paying attention to when evil starts to strike 
And evil is always aware when you're not. Innocent is, innocence is always vulnerable to us. And you and I can, if you're, if, you're, if you're an online shopper like myself, I like to shop online, I like Amazon, Amazon Prime particularly because it's a lot of free shipping. But if you don't use Amazon, and Amazon's a particular website, but if you don't use Amazon, use something else, tend to, tend to, every once in a while, if you'll look at the bottom, there's always something that pops up. And every once in a while, those unwondering eyes will start to get down to the bottom of the page, and you'll start to think, well, I wonder what that is. Innocently, before you know it, you have clicked onto a website that has taken you to another website that's drug you down another website, and before you know it, you got pornographic pictures coming up, and you got some pretty evil things coming in. Possibly a web chat. It always seems like there's a web chat that pops up. Evil's always after you, even when you're the most innocent and not paying attention to it because the complacency that we do in our lives, we don't pay attention to these things. We get so complacent. And yet, it gets the believer every single time in a worldly snare. Every single time somebody falls for it. Complacency was also very current in, in, in the disciples in Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, I'm about to leave. And we see the disciples in the 16th uh, chapter, in the 21st verse. When Jesus says, I'm about to, uh, he's beginning to tell his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, and on the third day he would be raised from the dead. I love, I, I, I always pay attention to what Peter, Peter does here because what Peter does is a, is a reminder of the complacency that he had been placed in pawn to. You know, Peter says he took him aside and he began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And then Jesus turned back to Peter and says, get away from me, Satan. You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Peter enjoyed the lifestyle he had. Jesus was feeding him. They were watching miracles. They were at the very presence of God. He was complacent in that situation. He didn't want that situation to change. Who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean, if you were in the presence of Jesus, who wouldn't want that situation to change? But Jesus knew that he was only here for a short time. And you and I are only here for a short time. And we got a lot of work to do while we're here. And Jesus had a lot of work to do. And he was still having to complete what he started. And yet, the disciples, they didn't want him to go. You can't go. What are you talking about? You're Jesus. You're God. You can't leave us now. And Jesus had to reprimand him. And the disciples didn't want that situation to change. Paul, he could have took his situation and totally changed instead of what he did. He didn't have to go on the road and, and have those many sufferings. When he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he could have simply took that gift and went back to Tarsus and lived a great life. He was already a Roman citizen and a Jewish man. And now he had Jesus in his life. He could have been content all day. He could have been perfectly fine with his situation. And yet Paul suffered. Paul took the word of God to the farthest point of the earth that he knew that he could do. And thankful for us that he did. I'm thankful every day that our pastor, at the young age of 16, when he came to know Christ, that he didn't sit and fold up the Savior's package in love and put it in his back pocket and say, good enough. That he was convicted. And I believe then he was called into the ministry right then and there. And thankful he was because many of us 
have had our lives changed because of things he has done and preached and brought us the word of God. I'm thankful for those things. I'm glad he didn't get complacent because he has every right to get complacent. Luckily for us, he's not. (laughs) That's all I can do to hold him back. Let me tell you something else that's in danger of complacency. The church is in danger of complacency. You know, throughout the election season, I know you heard it many times, a wall, the wall, the wall. We're going to build the wall. We're going to keep out all the bad immigrants, and we're going to keep all the good citizens inside. And this wall, and, you, and, I, and I'm not trying to knock him, but he, he said it was going to be a great wall. It was going to be built very high. It was going to be a beautiful wall. And then somebody else is going to pay for it. And I got to thinking, I wonder who he's really going to get to build this wall. And then I got to thinking, I, I, I know who he can get to build this wall. He can get the church to build this wall. Because they've been doing it a lot longer than he's thought about it. The church is a good wall-building crew of people. Y'all the best ones. We got the best techniques of doing it. We'll put a church in the middle of a residential community, and the first thing we do when we get all the good people, we say no more are allowed to come, and we start building that wall because we don't want nobody else to mess up our situation. This happens a lot in our youth department. We'll get a group of core kids, and they'll start turning out to be good, and they'll start inviting their heathen friends. And their heathen friends start showing up. And the first thing we say is, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't want those kids hanging out with our good kids. Better put a wall up in that, in that youth department. Better lock the doors. We're good at building walls. We've been building walls a lot longer than anybody thought about it. And let me tell you what can happen inside those walls. We'll get complacent. And we won't see danger coming to us from any point of view. We'll get inside of our little fortress. And we'll come in on Sunday... And we'll sit here, we'll sing our songs, we'll listen to our message, we'll give our tithe, and out with where we go. And we won't do anything about it. And all those people that are walking around the outside of our wall who need to be on the inside, we'll shut them out. Because we like our situation. Don't mess it up. Don't come in here looking for something, because we've already found it. Don't take our gift. I find that disturbing sometimes in churches. And unfortunately, it happens across this country more than I can think. I I got a lot of church friends. I got a lot of pastor friends who struggle with their congregations because their congregations don't want to step outside the wall anymore. They're happy. They're safe. Don't touch us. It's not about us anymore, though. Never has been because it was always about him. A Sunday school teacher challenged her children to take some time and to write a letter to God. One little boy sat down and grabbed his pencil and his paper and really sat there for a second, thought. She could see it in his eyes as he was looking up. And then he began to write. And he said, Dear God, we had a good time at church today. I really wish you could have been there. And that's happening because of our complacency. We're just happy with each other. We're happy with our songs. We're happy with our service. That's all we want. And we forget the reason we came here was to worship and honor God. So complacency, it's reversible if you realize it. Because Jesus never intended for us to be on easy street. I tell my youth this all the time. I'm like, that, that path of righteousness, Jesus described it as narrow. He didn't say impassable. He didn't say impossible. He just said it's a narrow path. But that other path is wide, it's easy, it's paved, that wide to destruction. And you can get on that quicker than anything. 
And complacency is reversible. It wasn't designed for us to have the easy street. You know, for some reason, we get that way. And we get to worrying about things all the time. I can work myself into a worrying frenzy about some stuff. And <laughs> joking. I get Joe all wrapped up. I'll just say things to get him going. But we need to take a moment and calm down and get behind Jesus. Contentment is not resignation. Now, this is a very important statement here. Because many of us will say, well, we've got all we need to do. We need to stop doing it right here because we're good. We've made it. And we don't need to be growing our church anymore because we should be content with the buildings that we already have. Why go any further? Why do we need to make another building? Why do we need extra education space? Why do we need to continue to build out our recreation facility? Why do you want these things? We don't have the financial backing to do it, so just stop doing these things. Well, I'm always reminded about Jonah. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, as Jonah has, been, has already been in the belly of the whale, he'd already tried to run from God more than once, and yet he finds himself at Nineveh, and he has to go down to the city, and he preaches to the people of Nineveh to repent and turn back to God. And when they do, the first thing we see Jonah do is going back to the hilltop, and he's angry, pouting, and stomping, and mad, and kicking the dust, and kicking plants over. And he says, God, I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were going to do That's why I didn't want to do it. I knew you weren't going to punish those Ninevites. And God looks down at Jonah and says, why are you so angry? that I didn't punish all these people, all these women, all these children, all these animals. Are you mad that they turned back? See, Jonah wanted to resign. He didn't want that job. He wanted to be done with that before he started. That's why he ran. And God tried to teach him a lesson. And even after all that, even after all that, even after all the anger and all the pouting, that when Jonah went to the hilltop to look at Nineveh, God still provided for him. Some versions say propped up a broom tree. Some say a leafy plant and provide him shade. And even after he was still mad about it, God took the plant away and said, are you mad that the plant died? You see, Jonah didn't, he didn't want to do these things. He was resigned to the fact that he didn't want to have to do what God wanted him to do. Many of us act the same way. Believers act the same way. I'm not going to go preach to that group of people because you, do you know what they said to me? Do you know how they act? We're the most unforgiving group of people sometimes. Do you know what that person just told me? I'm not going to forgive them. I'm resigned to the fact of being their friend. Not going to do it no more. The ministry is not going to work because I'm not going to do it. And many of us resign the fact that we have un. Simple minds again. We have this simple mind time frame. And we don't think God's capable of doing anything without all of our financial backings. If I I look across this this campus and I listen to our pastor tell me the stories of how Solid Rock came to be, it shouldn't be here. It had no financial backing. It had no major supporters at the time. It was just a small group. And yet this ministry has continued to thrive on just the bare bone minimums of pennies sometimes to continue the growth of this church. I'm amazed at what God's people can do when they don't resign to the fact just because we don't have it, we can't do it. 
Good grief, if we said that, we wouldn't have a children's department, a youth department, a sports department, a food ministry, medical clinic, thrift stores. We ain't got the money. Let me tell you what we do have. We got the people. We just can't get them up to go do it. They got complacent. They're comfortable. I should have bought steel chairs instead of big cushy chairs. Many of us start off with that defeated spirit, though. And we don't anticipate gaining contentment because we believe that sometimes you just have to change the environment. You can't take a pear tree and put it into an apple orchard and expect it to start producing pears or apples. It has to have a change in nature. And we have to have that change in nature. We can't resign to the fact that if we don't have the physical things, that we can't accept them by the spiritual things. God can give us all we'll ever need and more. That's why Jesus says, don't worry about today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today. There's too much going on now. Don't resign now. We still got a lot of work to do. Changing churches. I see this so many times with people who want to resign. I'm just going to change churches. I'm going to go somewhere else. It's not the answer. I'm going to change Sunday schools. I don't like this Sunday school teacher no more. It's not the answer. I'm going to go where there's a better program. Your softball program doesn't do very much for me. It's not competitive enough. Well, this past season we had six kids get saved. God puts us where he wants us. And right now he wants you at Solid Rock Baptist Church. And he wants you to do what God wants you to do. And have you prayed about it? Many people ask me, well, how do do I know what God wants me to do? Have you sought him? Have you sought his face? Have you gotten on your knees and prayed? I can't tell you. I'll tell you what I want you to do. But you'll resign. (laughs) Because I'll work you to death. Well, contentment is definitely not laziness. And don't try to glamorize laziness as the disguise for contentment. And I'm bad about this. (laughs) I'm not a yard person. In fact... If I had to do it all over again, I would have trucked in nothing but sand in my front yard and stuck a big cactus out there and I had desert instead of grass. I don't like cutting grass. I'm lazy when it, cut, when it wants to cut grass. My father-in-law loves to cut grass. He'd cut that stuff all day, seven days a week if he could. I don't know what he does on that lawnmower all the time, but he loves cutting grass. And some of you guys love cutting grass. I'm, I'm not a grass cutter. I just assume let it go. So I had to hire somebody to go cut my grass. I'm lazy. But laziness is not the same thing for contentment. God nowhere at no time endorses laziness. In fact, Newton's first law states that an object in motion tends to remain in motion. An object at rest tends to remain at rest. That law applies to people. While some are naturally driven to complete projects, others are not. They require more motivation. Laziness is a lifestyle for some, but is a temptation for us all. We can all fall into laziness. But the Bible's clear because the Lord Lord ordained work for man. It's the first thing he told Adam. Work it. Tend to the garden. Watch over it. That's a job. He didn't say go into the garden and have a great time. I'll see you later. Come back in about a thousand years. See how you've been doing. He said work it. Watch over it. God ordained work. It's not something we should run from. And I hear this all the time. There's not much I can do. I'm becoming disabled. You can still do something. There's still something you can do. Let me tell you what you could do. It's the greatest work that needs to be done. It's not done very often. And that's prayer. 
We need prayer teams in this church. We need prayer groups in this church. The power of prayer is more powerful than any instrument that we can come up with. God designed prayer. I was pointing this out to my youth as we're going through the book of Revelation. And in there he says the elders had had a gold bowl and it was full of the prayers from the saints. Saints are us. God hears prayers. He still hears prayers. And in Revelation, he's showing them. These are the prayers. We're offering them to God so that God can hear them. Don't be so lazy that you can't pray. That's ridiculous. I do it all the time driving down the road. Pray for everybody around me because I'm driving down the road. I needed a lot of prayer the other night. My son drove me to dinner. It'd been better off if he just whacked me outside the head with a frying pan and stuffed me in the trunk. I was scared to death because he don't pay attention to the road. In Proverbs 6, it says, There's no room for laziness in the life of a Christian. A new believer is truthfully taught that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. That is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But a believer can become idle if he erroneously believes that God expects no fruit from a transformed life. For we are aware of God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. Christians are not saved by works, but they do show their faith by the works. Slothfulness violates God's purpose. The Lord, however, wanted us to work. He empowers us to work. He gives us the abilities to work. And a work is what we should do. Hand to plow. Laziness is not always referring to physical demands, though. It doesn't mean you have to come in here and vacuum the carpet and paint the building and put a new roof on, which we could use. But a study has shown that only 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. That's a fact. Because only 40% of those people reading their Bible only occasionally read it maybe once or twice a month. And almost one in five churchgoers say they've never even read the Bible. Now that's lazy. That's lazy. Because you can get this thing in audio form now. You can get the Bible in audio form. You can listen to the Bible every single time you get in your car. So to not read it is laziness. And I can tell you, it's, it's, it's always amazing to me, my youth, that, don't, that come that don't bring a Bible to Bible study. I, I write it every single time. Make sure you bring your Bible. Bring a Bible. You're going to need it. I get it. The phone is an awesome, powerful tool, and it's got Bibles on it. But this thing right here in black and white, good old-fashioned form, is the best way to get God's Word. And when you walk away from it, some of the craziest things that can happen. Evil can sneak right into your life and take you hostage before you even realize it took place. It's lazy not to read a Bible. It's lazy not to even bring a Bible. Well, you know, I had to get out of the car, and y'all made the parking lot a mile and a half away, and I had to get all the way to the church building. Couldn't carry it. You can get a smaller version. Well, how does one learn contentment? Well, Paul said in the Philippians chapter 4, if you'll turn to the Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 or 10, Paul said that we can learn it everywhere and in all things. One can have contentment by realizing these three things. First, I can accept all things. Realize that no matter what you have and what you can say, is that I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all that you have, all that you're ever going to need, it's already been provided for you right now, right then, right when you ask Jesus into your heart. You have been given a self-sufficient nature. But you have to tap into these things that you have. I can accept them because I know that the Lord God is in control. I got a text this morning, a young man, one of my lieutenants, texted me and says, I need, I need spiritual help. I had a friend last night get murdered. And I had to tell him, hey, I understand that you're in shock, and I know you're grieving your loss. But trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. And we're not going to be able to figure out all the evil things that happen in this world, but I can tell you right now, I have more confidence that God is in control of every situation and every single moment because he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present. He's in every situation. Even when we don't like the situation that we're in and that we don't accept it, God is still in control. The earth is still spinning. It will be a day when he stops spinning it. But right now, he's in control. And you have to accept those things, good or bad. I know last Sunday when we left out of here, everybody was, I know the pastor said, be safe. If you need anything, call me. And it wasn't even by the end of that night. We already had a tragic incident. Colby Chandler flipped his Jeep, got hit. He's in the hospital. But we could accept Colby and his injuries because Colby was still alive. Now, had that been very different, I'm sure we would all been looking at Jesus and all been asking God, why did you do this? But I can accept all things because Christ is sufficient enough. I can do all things. In verse 13, I can do all things. Literally, we can do all things God has asked us to do with the help of Christ who gives us strength. Christ has more strength than you and I can even fathom. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 18, I mean 28, excuse me, I want to show you some of the power that Jesus has. When he refers to it as the yoke. In verse 28, it says, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. When Jesus describes the yoke, he's talking about the wooden piece that went across the oxen's shoulders. And in this situation, it was always for to be able to help the plow. Now Jesus is saying, hey, take upon my yoke, because my shoulders are much bigger than yours. I can carry more than you can carry. I have shouldered the weight of the world upon me. You can't. You can drag it along if you want to try, but he has the power to pick it up and carry on. And that's why Jesus says, hey, take my yoke because it's going to rest predominantly on my shoulders. I'm going to be the one to bear it. And it will make your burden a lot lighter. So we can do all things through Christ. And lastly, we have all things. All that you and I will ever need and will ever be given has already been given to us through Christ Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross and paid the ultimate sacrifice, it was for you and I to have all things. And that is life. What kind of gift is that? Eternal life. Eternal life in the glory of God. I love reading Revelation because I, 
I just feel like I'm there when, as John describes it. I feel like I'm looking at God's throne. I, look at, I feel like I'm, I'm looking at all the events that are about to come down. And I love the part where he says there was multitude upon multitude, millions upon millions of angels glorifying. I can't wait to see these things because I have right now in my heart already Christ living within me. And I know that he says that you shall not perish but have everlasting life. And when I get up into heaven and I see these millions of angels, I'm just going to be blown away and so thankful that that's all I had to have. They didn't have to have all these requirements and Jewish laws and, and things I had to go do to be saved. No, it was not by my works, but it was by my faith. And many of us walked into this church not even realizing how truly thankful we really are. The fact that we even got up and walked in, we should be thankful. The thankful that we have a building that we can walk into that's climate controlled, and now it's on the internet. Our climate control is on the internet. We could turn it off and turn it on and make it comfortable before you ever even get here. And I understand that as things happen and, and evil happens in this world and, and things are not going to stop, they're going to continue on. Newton County, it's going to look good on the outside, but it's got its problems on the inside. And tragedy is going to strike. People are going to die. Loved ones are going to leave us. My dad likes to try to remind me of that for some reason. You know, I'm not going to be here every day. There's going to be a day. And I said, Dad, why don't talk about these things. Why can't we just enjoy them now? I'm good with being content on that. Don't take that part away from me. But we have a lot to be thankful for. And in our contentment, we need to be thankful that God has already given us the gift of life. It's a gift. And in the few coming weeks, we're going to be celebrating that gift of our Savior's birth. It's a great gift to be thankful for. And you and I don't need any more than we already have. Our toolboxes are full, men. Our lawnmowers probably work good enough. Ladies, your dresses, you got plenty of them. But I know you'll receive some gifts, and that's great. But since I'm on that, <laughs> on that topic, we will be doing a Christmas hope for the holidays. We will be helping meet some physical needs for people. Now, you might ask, well, why is giving... Giving these people presents worth our time. Because every year that we've done this, we presented the gospel and we have seen people's lives transformed and given over to Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. They might have never had that opportunity any other way. But we take every opportunity we get. We don't get complacent and say we're good enough, there's nothing we can do, and my goodness, it's around the Christmas time and I'm just going to just relax and be time with the family. We take that opportunity to reach out because we don't have walls here on Solid Rock. And we need to have that same spiritual go-getter attitude each and every day. Contentment can cause us to be complacent, lazy, and we resign the fact there's anything we can do. We got a lot to do. With every head bowed,